This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 142 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Our guest this week is Nico Dakins. Online, people know him as the Dutch OSINT guy, a handle he's earned through his extensive knowledge and background in open source intelligence. Nico shares his own history getting into the field, as well as some real-world examples of how he goes about gathering OSINT and how individuals can do a better job protecting themselves online. And, of course, we'll get his insights on threat intelligence as well. Stay with us. I have a background in the government, uh, Dutch police to be precise. I'm an uh, intelligence analyst and I worked there for over 23 years, building um, the open source intelligence framework for the Dutch law enforcement, as well as teaching almost each and every uh, governmental body who conducts open source uh, investigations. And currently, I shifted to Bellingcat, and there um, they bombarded me to be a manager and a senior investigator. Hmm. Now, were you someone who was interested in this sort of thing when you were coming up and, and growing up? Um, yeah. Well, I'm. I was always very interested in in computers and IT in general, but especially um, finding out stuff and puzzling. That has always been my uh, my hobby. So I made my uh, my job, my hobby, basically. Mm, yeah, good for you. Um, well, let's go over exactly what OSINT is. For folks who uh, may not be completely familiar with it, how do you describe it? Um, I would describe it as uh, finding open information, and it could be anywhere. It could be on the Internet. It could be in a library. It could be by uh, looking in a magazine. So publicly available information for you to find, for your mother to find, for anyone to find. And so how does that come into the work that you do? Um, well, from when you look at my background, when I was uh, hunting down uh, jihadists, uh, for instance, or uh, domestic terrorists, they are online very often and they leave traces on their social media. They, and that tells a story about their interest, maybe their contacts, maybe um, where they have been all kinds of things. And the same thing we do at Bellingcat. Um, we try and help those accountable for wrongdoings. And we do that by finding information uh, most of the time on the internet. Can you give us some examples of how that works? I mean, are, are there situations where people have been deliberate in trying to hide themselves and, and yet they just, they can't help sharing some information inadvertently? Yeah. Um, well, there's, Always a vast majority of people uh, who make um, their day job of being, um, let's say, on a down low or, or not to be found. But there's always someone around them which, uh, who will tell a little detail, maybe in a picture from the daughter or maybe uh, someone else in a restaurant or in the, in the gym where they hang out will make a selfie and we can see based on their likes, for instance, uh, that they hang out in that gym very often. Then we go look at that gym and we look at pictures of a gym and we see the person of interest in those pictures and we see him talking to someone and uh, five pictures further, we see them talking to the same person and that person tagged him or herself 
to, for instance, an Instagram or Facebook page of that gym. So now we know the name and then we can pivot in and, well, you can go deeper and deeper. It's just finding piece of the puzzle and, if possible, uh, from two or more different sources. So one source is no source in uh, when it comes to open source intelligence. You need to verify at all times. And how do things like uh, facial recognition and, and some of the, the more advanced technologies we keep hearing about, how do they come into the work that you're doing? Well, um, they are coming in more and more. Um, it's um, shifting. It used to be a lot of handwork, manual work, but nowadays the, the amount of data is so huge that you need to um, use facial connect recognition, for instance. You don't need to, but it makes it easier. It makes your uh, process go faster. Also text recognition or maybe um, uh, use machine learning to detect certain um, differences in landscape or geolocations. We, we use it um, as an example when you are looking for um, minefields in war zones, for instance. You can use satellite imagery, just commercial freely open satellite imagery, and you put some machine learning on top of it, and you learn it how a landscape looks when it's filled with mines. And then you can feed it additional uh, satellite imagery and let it detect areas where mines are possibly placed. So it sounds like a, a situation where combining the technical with the expertise of, of the people themselves, that you can process a lot more information than you otherwise would be able to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it speeds up the process, but it also, there's a fall bit in it because in my opinion, a lot of artificial intelligence or machine learning isn't good enough yet. So it misses stuff or it misinterprets stuff. So you need to look at it a little bit more in depth with your own eyes or maybe let someone else look at it because you stare yourself blind on it already. You know, I, I've heard that a lot of folks who uh, try to set up some sort of uh, you know, false persona online, that there's common mistakes that they'll make that connect them to their real identity. Are, are there any of those that you can share with us? Yeah, uh, well, it's it's uh, when you look at the darknet marketplaces, uh, which, um, for instance, law enforcement and Dutch law enforcement, especially with the FBI, there were always loose ends. They were uh, on the dark web and darknet markets. They were on pseudonyms or or false handles, satanic satanic uh, identities, and. Uh, what they would do sometimes is uh, use that same handle or uh, the email address to sign up that handle to ask questions in the plain web. And that gave them out. And they used to be on the download. You couldn't find them because they only had the handle and only had a dark web Tor connection. But once they started asking questions on specific places on the clear web, you could find them and identify them. Does it ever happen that that you end up um, with a dead end? Or is it? Is oh it... yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My job is ninety uh, percent of the time getting into a dead end. Um, that's what people forget when you conduct open source intelligence. Um, as an example, you walk on a road and you go left and right, and each and every time you will end up at a dead end, but you did explore that road. So you learned a lesson, you gained, you guarded intelligence, um, you, you found information, and you must keep track of that information. Because uh, when you keep track or you end 
or you, you are a dead end, it doesn't mean that tomorrow that same dead end will have new information because now a crawler of Google went by it and it indexed new information, which you didn't find the day before. So, yeah, there are a lot of dead ends, but even the dead ends can come alive again. Hmm. And I suppose also knowing where not to look is, is a valuable bit of information as well. Yeah, for sure, because you develop, let's say, a third eye to look for certain pieces of information on websites. So when I look at a picture and I need to geolocate it, I won't look at the persons on the picture, but I'll look at the surrounding because they tell uh, where it's at. Or um, something else, when you look in documents, a PDF document may have uh, metadata underneath it. So it will provide you something about the machine um, uh, of the person who wrote the document. Or maybe they will just have their contact info uh, beneath uh, um, as a closure of the document. So, yeah, you like you said, you know where to look um, once you do this from it on a daily basis. What's your advice for people who are out there trying to strike that balance between maintaining a, a good level of privacy online, but also you know, not going overboard, realizing that there's always going to be some information out there. The good thing is there a lot of search engines uh, will provide you with the right to be forgotten. So you can provide them the information uh, which they indexed, which you don't want to have pop up anymore when people search your name, for instance. But you can also think of adding noise if you don't want to be found or generating a little bit of noise. For instance, generate uh, your name with a lot of telephone numbers which you don't own just to keep the adversary busy, for instance. I don't think you can hide from the internet anymore, but it's just being aware of is it necessary to share all the information that people share nowadays? Is it necessary to share each and every vacation pick which tell a story of you or maybe your job or maybe your financial position or something else? Yeah, that's a really interesting insight that I suppose a lot of people just sort of share reflexively without maybe thinking that um, that's, you know, there's that saying whatever you share on the internet is, is kind of there forever. Yeah. Yeah, well, well but I've, I recently got a fairly good example. Uh, there was a CEO of a certain big company, but he had his um, badge, his door badge on his neck. and But he wasn't aware of it, obviously, because uh, a red team uh, um, found that picture. And that picture actually was taken of um, his PA's birthday. So they took a picture with cake and everything and celebrating, but he wasn't aware that that specific badge picture was essential for the red team to copy and mimic and get into um, their company. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, I want to uh, talk about um, threat intelligence with you a bit. And uh, what is your take on threat intelligence? What part do you think it plays in an organization's defenses? Well, especially nowadays in the digital age, I think if you're a self-respecting company, you should do at least the least uh, a little bit of threat intelligence. Uh, see how your adversary talks about your brand, for instance, but also are we being attacked and how severe is the attack? Where's the attack coming from? What are they aiming for? What is my personnel giving away? Because they're most of the time the weakest link. So 
well, the example I just gave a minute ago is basically a form of threat intelligence. Is it necessary to have people let them wear their badges uh, out in the open just because we want to keep safe and people don't, uh, we don't want to have people copying it? So, yeah, it's, it's two parts. It's the digital part, so the digital attack part, and it's the physical world part, which you can still find in open sources nowadays. And how much does that that sort of uh, real-world part, the part that's not digital, how much does that play into the work you do? Well, I think it depends on the job you have. Uh, for instance, um, like I said, red teaming, they do a lot of social engineering. And before they do the social engineering, they can do a lot of online reconnaissance, open source intelligence, basically, and which helps them to talk themselves uh, in, the, in a system or uh, gain access to a certain door, for instance, because they now have a pretext and a story based on the intelligence gathered. So, yeah, I think it blends in, uh, you know, real world blends in very good. But also when I uh, commute or travel, I see people typing in their passcode and then I can shoulder them and I can see their social media accounts. For instance, if I was a private eye and I didn't know where to look and I couldn't find them, I might tail them and find their social media accounts then and then go back to the office and pivot off that information. How does this affect you personally? Do, do you ever find yourself, uh, you know, just being extra careful? Do, does, it, does any sort of paranoia sort of set in, knowing what you know? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I used to be, I think, a little bit more paranoid when I was in law enforcement and doing um, the covert ops stuff. But mm. now, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm aware, but I'm also... Um, Fairly certain, if you even if you step up your operational security to the maximum level, people uh, with bad intentions can and will get in if they want to. I think it's more of being able to detect anomalies and then take your countermeasures. What sort of advice do you have for someone who might be considering a career working with open source intelligence? What what sort of um, aspects do you look for in someone who, who you, for example, you would hire to do that sort of work? Uh, first of all, I'm, I, I would look for people who have a lot of tenacity. Uh, that's really important because um, you will, like we said, end up in a lot of dead ends. So you, you must not give up ever. You must be willing to um, spend a lot of time behind a screen but also you must be good at puzzling and being a devil's advocate because it's very, fairly easy to find a lot of information, but it doesn't become intelligence until you uh, refine and analyze the information to uh, make a decision on it or take action on it. Yeah, so. it must be exciting when those pieces fall together and you, you know, when, when all that hard work pays off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's absolutely satisfying when you solve the puzzle. Basically, it's it's that's what you do it for. Um, that's what drives me all the time. Finding that new tool that gives me that extra piece of information that no one knows how to find, or maybe see that little detail in a picture because I just bought a higher resolution screen, which gives me more depth in color so I can see a detail and that is the breakthrough in a certain case. So yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, that's what I do it for, for that 
that rush. Our thanks to Nico Dakins for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Music.